0: Welcome to part two of our previous Driven by Prevention podcast episode brought to you by the Merck Animal Health Swine Team. If you haven't already, please be sure to check out part one by listening to the previous episode and as a reminder, Merck Animal Health is proud to be your invested partner in the industry and is focused on solving your swine disease and reproductive challenges for better business and improved animal welfare productivity, opportunity, partnership, wellness, all driven by prevention. So management is important, and the labor force is important, but record keeping, because if you're not, you can visually track things and work from memory, but if you're not actually documenting, you may think one thing, but when you go back to the records, you'll be seeing something completely different in your operation, good or bad.
1: Yeah, yep. I and mean, it kind of goes back to the old saying, you can't manage what you don't measure, and so mm-hmm. this another piece that I feel that we need to be measuring more closely is those changes in body condition, um, particularly as those animals go into feral, we can go back and look and see how that animal uh, was handled in that gestation period. Likewise, in, in the lactation period, um, particularly we talk about seasonal anestrus. If I'm the breeding technician, I want to understand how my farrowing people fed those sows. How much body weight did they lose? What was their body condition score going into farrowing? What was their body condition score going going out of farrowing? Uh, because that tells us how much body weight that animal lost uh, during lactation. It allows us to prepare that hey, we're going to have some issues uh, with this wean pit, with this wean sow population if we have a high percentage of those animals that lost body weight in lactation, and. It, and it, it creates a, a feedback mechanism back to farrowing. If the breeders are seeing a bunch of thin sows come out, they can go back into farrowing and say, hey, uh, what are we missing here? We've got some opportunities to do a better job of trying to drive feed intake and prevent body weight loss in, in this population of animals. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you discuss when skip a heat should be used versus PG 600?
2: So I think if you have a sow coming out of lactation who's really lost a lot of condition and is is thin, um, she's probably, again, to minimize the use of PG 600, she's probably one where you might wanna consider skipping a heat instead of trying to use PG 600. Um, She might have other issues going on in terms of maybe oocyte quality being low because she's in this negative body condition that PG 600 may not be able to help make up for. So she would be a good one to think about skipping a heat and then trying to breed her on the next heat versus um, just doing a drug intervention on.
0: Now, the last three, five years, we've heard a lot about uh, batch farrowing. Uh, is that uh, something we're gonna see growing? Is that, are, we, are producers getting the most benefit out of switching to, or going from normal, or what we know as traditional farrowing, to batch farrowing, and will it work for everybody?
1: I mean, it seems like there's more interest in batch farrowing, and some systems are looking at that. Uh, The batch farrowing systems that I've been exposed to are typically set up uh, on a four-week batch uh, with five groups, uh, part of that 20-week cycle. Um, You know, the batch farrowing systems, uh, you know, they do work. I mean, I think one of the benefits there uh, from a health standpoint is now you've got the same age animals all in the farrowing house, so you don't have multi-age animals uh, spread through that farrowing house. Um, so you got more of a homogeneous population of animals uh, from a health standpoint um, You know as you think about uh, some of the other benefits uh, with batch farrowing you got a l- large wean pig population And so you think about how a farm was set up or a system a lot of times our wean to market facilities Don't fit our sow farms perfectly from a flow standpoint uh, a lot of times these wean to market facilities are, are large facilities uh, and it takes. We have extended fill times, particularly if they're getting sourced from smaller sow farms. And so, a batch farrowing system allows you to create a large wean pig population, and we're able to fill those wean to market facilities a lot faster. And so, you have less uh, fill time. And there's some uh, benefits of having a uh, quicker fill time as it relates to health of those animals, how you feed those animals, environmental management, uh, etc. So. Um, you know, batch farrowing is something to be looked at. And also from a labor standpoint, mm-hmm. you're able to concentrate all that labor on farrowing. I mean, you're farrowing all those animals in a given week. That's so you're able to take, uh, the, the farms, uh, labor personnel and focus on day one care and farrowing out animals. And, um, scheduling is another big factor with batch farrowing. You're able to schedule that labor. You know, when all those animals are going to be farrowing, they're not, you know, strung out over multiple weeks. Um, You just got one heavy week and uh, you put resources toward it. And so there's some inherent benefits to it. There's some disadvantages too when you're farrowing that many animals, particularly as you think about uh, uh, nurse-sow management and how you deal with that. And you've got got some uh, increased non-productive days in a batch farrowing system as well.
2: Another consideration would be the gilt management to feed into a batch system, so you probably have to use some more altrinogest-based products to do some synchronization of those gilts since your breeding will be also concentrated just like your farrowing. So Mm -hmm. gilt pool management becomes another Mm -hmm. consideration.
0: Can you expand on uh, altrinogest use to synchronize gilt populations?
2: Yeah, so I think we can. Um, so Altrinagest is going to be able to synchronize estrus in a group of females to enter into the breeding herd. So we can use that, we may be able to identify like, gaps in breeding targets um, or big groups of sows that we may want to call, call from disease or things like that where we're going to need these larger groups. So Altrinagest is a really great tool for us to be able to create large groups that will enter at the same time. Um, And so it's really beneficial to use in a batch farrowing system like we talked about to have those groups entering on a specific week But there's plenty of situations in continual flow scenarios where we also might need to get these big groups of gilts to come in Uh, Probably also maybe a little bit in the summer when we are expecting some seasonal infertility issues We may be able to use some alternagest to have more replacement gilts uh, ready to go into the herd
0: Mm Have you heard of operations that have switched from uh, traditional farrowing to a batch farrowing system and the response that, you know, the, either with the workers or the, the females themselves working into that? Or is it you got to do a complete clean sweep switch from gilt development, bring them into a batch farrowing?
1: I would say on the, the farms that um, I've been exposed to that switch to batch farrowing, in general, the labor, um, the workers really like the batch farrowing system. Um, you know, certain of the week of farrowing is a heavy week. Uh, a lot of work goes into that, but uh, getting all those animals concentrated, farrowed, um, it's all all done in that given week as far as the heavy labor, labor resource requirements. And then just Back to the scheduling piece of it, the, the work-life balance, you know, pork producers put a lot of work into, into these animals, but uh, same time, they need time off. And from a farm manager's standpoint, with batch farrowing, it allows you to schedule that labor uh, during that critical period of time. And then uh, on weeks you're not farrowing, gives the opportunity for the employees to take off and, and you don't have to worry about farrowing a bunch of animals throughout the entire month. It's all, all happening then. Um, I think also just the health benefits of it you know there's that's probably something that gets underestimated is um, some of the health benefits of having all those animals at the same age so less treatments Um, you know some of those things go into it as well Mm -hmm. you alluded to some of the
0: uh, breeding technologies available want to expand on that a little bit
2: sure so I look at what we're seeing today as kind of fitting into a couple realms based on how we can best utilize these high indexing bores is where I think the technologies are kind of stemming from. And so in order for us to maximize our high indexing bores, we can do one of a couple things. We can either um, reduce the number of inseminations so that each ejaculate can breed more females. We can reduce the number of sperm cells that we breed with in each insemination. Um, or in theory, we could start to freeze semen and utilize frozen semen to spread those genetics even globally better. Um, so in order for us to reduce the number of inseminations, we need to usually do single fixed timed AI. Um, so the gonadotropin drugs that are very different depending on where you are in the world, um, those are GNRH-based products that induce ovulation and we can use just one insemination. Some of the challenges or, or things that you have to consider when you're doing that is that um, you probably still need to do a lot of heat detection. So when, when we first started thinking about doing single fixed timed AI, we thought this will be great. We don't have to do any heat detection. Our labor comes to nothing. We do one breeding and we're out of there. Um, unfortunately, you know, there is no golden ticket that's quite that good. Um, And so we still have to do a lot of heat detection because you're going to have sows that are going to come into heat early, especially today. We're seeing a little bit higher numbers of sows that are returning about day three instead of day four, five, and six. Um, And so those animals would probably ovulate before we would be inducing them to. Um, And then, especially during the summer, you might have a lot of sows that are going to return later and they are not able to ovulate in response to the drugs um, at day four. So I think there's still a lot of heat detection that needs to be done and that's a lot of training with your employees to be able to identify the animals that maybe won't be able to respond to those those protocols. Uh, Post-cervical AI has been pretty popular over the past five or six years in the U.S. and that is about trying to reduce the number of sperm cells in each insemination dose. Um, And PCAI is is different but similar to conventional AI. So in conventional AI, we put the semen into the cervix and the sow needs to be in standing heat while we do it and she needs to basically accept through muscle contractions kind of draw the semen in during the breeding process. So each insemination conventionally maybe takes two to three minutes per sow. When you do post-cervical AI, you wanna heat detect first and then come back while the sow is in her refractory period. So that is somewhere between about 10 and 40 minutes after heat detection. And we're gonna use a different catheter that has a small inner diameter catheter that goes all the way into the uterus. And we're going to deposit the semen further into her reproductive tract. Um, And so we don't want her to be in the standing heat reflex when we do that kind of insemination because um, standing heat basically is a whole lot of muscle contraction and we wouldn't have a good chance of threading that inner catheter in if if her cervix was constantly squeezing us out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then at that point she isn't going to draw the semen in because she's not standing and so we have to use gentle pressure to kind of force the semen in. Um, So the idea was that if you adopt PCAI and you're putting the semen further into her reproductive tract, um, more semen then will make it to the site of fertilization if you could could put less in because it won't be filtered out by the cervix. Um, And so a lot of farms jumped maybe a little too fast into lowering the dose of semen. Um, And so we typically have about an 80 milliliter dose of semen that has 3 billion sperm cells for conventional AI. And we started out just dividing that in half uh, to do a post-cervical AI dose. And well-managed farms did did still had pretty good reproductive performance at that level. Um, and so then some farms tried to go even lower. And I think uh, when we hit seasonal infertility in the sow and you may be getting semen that is also impacted by season, some of those lower doses started to struggle a little bit. So um, my recommendation is start by just adopting PCAI first and keep three billion. And if you get that going well, go to about a three quarter dose um, and kind of slowly step down the dose that you are are putting in.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, AI is an art form to do it right. Yes. Does this require, uh, post cervical AI, does that require even a more trained technician or if you're an AI technician, you'll master PCI, AI?
2: I believe if you're an AI technician, you'll master PCAI. I think it provides a little bit more information about where your animal is in her standing heat Um, and so that the cervix is going to be really tight when the sow is not in heat. It's going to open up and loosen when she's in heat and as she's starting to go out of heat, it's going to kind of clamp back down. And when you are get good and you've bred enough sows, you can start to kind of identify where they are in that heat process and and when they're coming back out of heat specifically where you might be breeding for kind of no good reason. And that's just based on how easy or hard it is to thread that inner catheter. So I think a, a well-trained technician, anybody can kind of learn how to do it, it's pretty simple. Um, but then a well-trained technician can also start to look at their animals and understand their heat cycles even better. Okay.
1: What about these uh, breeding technologies as it relates to the gilt? How do you handle the gilt with PCAI or single fixed time insemination?
2: That's a good question. Um, So from a PCAI standpoint, the AI companies are selling gilt-specific PCAI catheters. my personal opinion is that the Gilt's guilt's challenge with PCAI. Yeah. One is that the just overall size of her reproductive tract is so much smaller. So to thread that inner catheter through her cervix can just be challenging f- because it's, it's small. Uh, the other challenge with her is when we're putting that semen into her uterus and she's not s- kind of accepting it herself, um, the, f- the lumen fluid volume of her uterus I don't think is 80 milliliters. I think it's less. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I've had my experience personally with breeding gilts with PCAI, about halfway through a hundred mil, 80 mil dose, you know, I'm struggling to get that to stay in her. Um, And so some people will say then go ahead and stimulate her with a bore or try to stimulate her um, just manually to make her start to kind of take in some of that semen. Um, But at that point, you're doing what you would have done in a conventional mm-hmm. method and i think that that's probably more successful. I think there are is a little bit of data that shows maybe a small reduction in infertility and gilts with PCAI um, but i think a, probably a lot of that just comes down to the technique and and getting that inner catheter all the way into the uterus and being a challenge in gilts. So um, it's not impossible and I think there are some certain systems that are making it work but my recommendation right now is that it's probably a little bit risky. Mm-hmm. Some of the reproductive technologies also can reduce the amount of time that breeding is taking place over which then ends up synchronizing the farrowing event a little bit as well. And so you can you can use some of these other technologies to synchronize that and try to you can use induction as well. So Um, Sometimes I think farrowing induction's gotten a bad rap, but um, it can be a really useful tool to increase the number of animals that are farrowing when your labor is present, and that saves piglets.
0: Mm -hmm. We've addressed management a lot today. Um, What are there, are there some management issues that operations need to hold to for semen supply management?
2: Um, Yes, (laughs) so I think Uh, Maybe we can look at that two ways. One is just generally everything kills sperm. So I always joke with my students in class that you can just look at them funny and they're going to start dying. So um, we need to treat each individual dose of semen as something that needs to have a, a maintained environment. Uh, so most of that comes down to temperature management. Um, and so when you receive the semen at the sow farm, it needs to be managed at the drop site. The temperature needs to be very closely managed. And then once it moves into the sow barn, the temperature needs to be managed. Um, that's probably the most important thing to do is being sure we're checking temperature. Uh, so the semen shouldn't come out of the cooler and go into the barn and then come back into the cooler, especially in the summer months. You've just warmed that semen up several degrees and then trying to put it back down. So that's one benefit also of PCAI compared to conventional AI is that when I go into the barn, I know exactly how many doses of semen I need to bring with me because I've already performed heat detection. Um, So I'm able to kind of manage semen a little bit that way. When we talk about these reproductive technologies that might be coming, um, if we're gonna be putting fewer semen in, whether lower the number of inseminations or lower the number of sperm in the dose, we better be darn sure that those sperm cells are good. Mm -hmm. Um, And so probably using younger semen that is closer to the day of collection um, is going to be more and more beneficial in the adoption of those technologies.
0: Now, has there been been research on using vasectomized bores, yay or nay on that?
2: I think a vasectomized boar does a pretty darn good job. Um, so he allows for full tactile as well as penetration um, of the gilt in, in the pen uh, without having to worry about you know, pregnancy early. Mm-hmm. So um, as long as the boar is mature and, and produces a good amount of saliva and then being vasectomized and being able to mount and, and penetrate the female can be a lot of stimulation for those animals. They come at a little bit of a better labor risk as well, so if you're, the labor requirements to do good full-contact boar exposure with an intact male that you don't want to actually breed can be um, challenging from a worker's perspective because that can be a little bit dangerous for the employees. So having the vasectomized animal is kind of a good solution for that.
1: How many boars should we have on a farm? That's
2: a good question, (laughs) Um, enough that you have rotation of bores, I mean it kind of depends on pen size like you mentioned and how many gilts are there and how many different pens you have and what the labor is to be able to rotate them. So I think the program has to have enough bores that gilts see different bores uh, and even every day or every two days of a a novel bore would be really beneficial Um, and that there's enough bores that they don't get too tired trying to stimulate each individual animal for 15 minutes. Um, So that kind of depends on the the facilities in the place, but you do need a pretty good source of boars. The other consideration there is just the rotation of boars coming into the farm, so making sure that you are breeding boars several times a year, whether you're purchasing semen or just bringing them in with the gilts. Um, but we need to make sure that we have a good rotation of those boars for when they get old and get too large, and we have new young ones coming in.
1: In the breeding barn, should we focus on heat checking the gilts first because they're not going to stand as long versus the sows, or should we? Does it matter?
2: Um, I think we need to focus on the guilt period. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I would I would do them first, and um, they take a little bit longer to actually show the standing heat reflex and, and demonstrate the behaviors. So whereas maybe a, a sow will lock up Um, before the boar even makes it in front of her crate, she's already locked up and pretty easy to identify. A lot of those younger females are gonna take more stimulation by the employees, um, as well as having the boar directly in front of them. So when you're doing that kind of contact, you never want the boar to have exposure to more than six animals at a time, so that he can be sure he gets full nose-to-nose contact with each of those animals. So that's where the boar boar bots and some of those um, you know, harnesses and things where you can slowly move the bore become really, really helpful for that. Mm
1: -hmm. How important is it to have a trailer bore during heat checking? Do you advocate that?
2: I do. I think that's really helpful because I think for those animals that do require a little bit more stimulation to show the response, um, those trailer bores, and then that also gives them access to two different bores, so if one doesn't produce a great level of pheromones or the one animal didn't get a good exposure to it, the trailer boar will hopefully pick those up for you. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that really can be beneficial and you'll identify more sows in heat if you use both of them.
0: Now you mentioned uh, trailer boar in one of your answers before, Aaron. Can you describe what is a trailer boar?
1: Yeah, typically uh, with boar exposure, one boar is gonna be able to cover three to five females and the concept behind a trailer boar is you basically have a boar that's following uh, your primary boar to continue to stimulate uh, estrus in those uh, breeding females. So it just puts a lot more boar exposure in front of those animals, and you're able to uh, keep those animals in in heat a little bit longer. It helps with the insemination process as well, because you just got a lot more stimulation versus a single boar. The other thing that that it helps with too is a lot of times when we're doing heat checking, sometimes there's, there's residual feed Uh, in the gestation area and a lot of times if your primary boar if they can access the feed or spending time eating it's not ideal we need to make sure that feeds cleaned up prior to heat checking but having two trailer boars there uh, definitely helps in terms of just overall pheromone production and and just stimulating those females so certainly a good practice uh, to have uh, two boars out in front of those those animals. Now another definition time ESF electric cell feeding. Can you
0: expand on that a little bit? What's that, does that work for everybody? What is the adoption in the industry that you know of?
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, ESF is electronic cell feeding. And so basically that is a way to, uh, to facilitate group housing of animals. Uh, basically a ESF, uh, electronic cell feeders placed in a pen. There could be multiple stations within that pen, depends on the size of the pen and how many uh, sows or gilts you're running per station. But uh, what it does is it allows you to uh, electronically deliver feed to those animals, so each animal is identified uh, with an RFID tag, and as they enter into that feeding station, uh, that animal's fed, and the computer system knows whether that animal consumed consume feed on that given day or if that animal's a non-eater, and if that animal's a non-eater, it allows the caretaker to go in there, identify that animal in the pen, Uh, and understand what's going on, why that animal uh, wasn't able to consume feed. You know, did it lose an ear tag? Uh, Is the animal maybe sick? And so if it's sick, they'll move it to a hospital pen and and take care of that animal and and get it recovered. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it's uh, adoption of those systems. um, There's a lot of systems that have put in ESF um, as they've addressed some of their their housing needs, uh, whether that's uh, consumer-driven, in some cases it is. but certainly, it's a it's a good tool. There's other housing systems uh, for group housing as well, whether it's uh, stalls or stanchion feeding. Uh, but uh, there's different different ways to do group housing. ESF's an option for some producers if they want to move that way.
2: And I think the ESF's another great example of how we are managing individual animals in in large groups, mm-hmm. right? So this, uh, like Aaron mentioned, it, if the animals off feed, I now have a Early indicator of maybe a health problem or something a lameness issue or something wrong with that animal. Mm-hmm. So from a welfare perspective, I'm able to identify animals a lot quicker, possibly that maybe have some some health issues. So I can individually manage their feed in a group while they still get to be in a group setting. And I think that's a really unique opportunity for us that was kind of taken away when we you know started when some farms moved to the group housing and gestation versus the stalls. The stalls gave us the ability to individually feed and adjust on body condition, um, but the ESFs then put that back to us as a, as a tool in, in group housing. Mm-hmm. Other considerations just for the group housing system is um, group size I think probably still needs a little more research maybe to, to determine an optimal there, but um, the other thing is to think about is a lot of the different farms that are using the ESF systems uh, have either static or dynamic pens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a static pen would be where all of the sows get bred at one time and they move into the same group and they stay in that group for the entirety of gestation. Um, and then they have other pens where there's a constant flow of sows that are getting bred and, and moving into the into the groups. Um, I think there's pros and cons to both of those, and maybe we don't have enough good data to show on the same farm and the same environments um, you know, if one or the other is a little bit better for reproduction and, and things of that nature. But there's a lot of considerations to go into how to manage these ESFs in the group setting. The other big consideration from a reproductive standpoint is when do you turn them into the to the group pen and put them on the ESF system after breeding. Um, And so a lot of farms do a lot of different things there as well, they usually wean into a crate, uh, get bred in a crate and either move immediately into the group or they stay in that crate until preg check approximately 30 days later and then get mixed into groups from there. So there's some other variations that happen there.
0: And there's a variety of what works and what doesn't depending on the operation, the the timing of movement in to that and it's like the number of uh, females in the in the group setting.
2: Yes, from a facility standpoint, you have to have enough crates to hold all of the sows that you would need to hold for 30 full days, plus any sick and injured that need to be removed and and individually managed, they need to have their space as well. So if you're gonna hold them for 30 days, you have to have the facilities to be able to do that. Um, Otherwise, there's pretty clear physiology of what happens after breeding in terms of the um, time for fertilization, the importance of that early, prior to implantation period where that embryo is free-floating in the uterus is when we really want to avoid stress in that female. And implantation really isn't completed until maybe 28 to 30 days into gestation. Um, and so we have that whole window of time where we can reduce basically you know, fertilization from happening in that period if we induce stress of mixing at those times. So the rules of thumb usually are really, really early or, or wait 30 days. Um, a lot of farms will move by week, so whoever gets bred that week then gets moved at the end of the week into the group, but then you're actually mixing between days four and seven after breeding, which is actually a really bad time to be doing that. Um, so a lot of consideration into the flow of animals into those groups needs to be taken to.
0: Well, I want to thank Dr. Kara Stewart and Dr. Aaron Gaines for uh, great information, a lot of good discussion going on today, and I want to thank you for joining us on today's webinar. Uh, We will be getting to the uh, question and answer session, so hopefully, you have been, uh, we've got some great questions in already, and we'll get to as many as we can. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Driven by Prevention podcast. Please subscribe for future episodes from Merck Animal Health and learn more about Merck Animal Health at drivenbyprevention.com.